I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling, opening with some fine young cannibals. She drives me crazy. <laughs> was the bear on Kildare a boy or a girl? Do we know? I think it was, um, oh boy. Are you going with boy? <laughs> <laughs> Jeff had it in his uh, 530. Oh, yeah? oh a male bear, a one-year-old male bear. Oh, you know what? Uh, just seeing footage of it now on uh, Global Morning on uh, Global Television. And, uh, well, let's just say it was a happy ending. It yeah. could have been a much different conclusion to a situation that none of us anticipated hearing about. You know, you get wildlife in the city. We had a young deer purportedly at the intersection of Logan and Arlington yesterday, but a bear in the heart of Transcona? Well, I guess it could have come off of the, uh, come in from further east. I think there have been bears spotted sort of uh, by the floodway and kind of the edge of the perimeter and whatnot. Uh, or, and this is funny, I was wandering down the hall yesterday morning, heard uh, Joe Aiello over on Power 97. Phil had said there was a bear spotted in Charleswood something like three months ago. And Joe said, well, with all the construction between Charleswood and Transcona, it's no wonder it took three months for that bear to get to Transcona. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, if you have any wildlife sightings that you want to share with us, pictures or picture less, 204-780-6868 and traffic as well. Jeff mentioned right off the top of his news at 6 o'clock that the perimeter highway is closed just west of Highway 6. So that's on the northwest corner of the perimeter. As we understand, it's both directions as well. So if you have further information on that, we'd appreciate an update. In fact, one of the gentlemen that we count on for updates on the highway just asked us what the situation was on the perimeter. So if he doesn't know, uh, I think we'll be forgiven for not knowing for sure. But that's the last report we had about 4 o'clock this morning. And according to the Manitoba Highways website, that section of the perimeter highway near Highway 6, just west of there, is still closed. It's camp day. Tim Horton's camp day. Big deal today. Want to look at? We want to send a lot of kids to a Tim Hortons camp. And if you are not familiar with Tim Hortons Camp Day, this is something where if you buy a coffee, you can change a life. 100% of proceeds of hot coffee sales at participating restaurants across Canada will be donated to the Tim Hortons Children's Foundation. And those funds will directly help youth from the low-income homes go on a life-changing experience at a Tim Horton camp. Greg and I are going to be at the Tim Hortons on just down the street here, 980 St. James, from 11.30 until 12.30. Have you seen this camp, White Shell, in Pinawa? It's absolutely spectacular. I want to go there. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> I know. <laughs> You're ineligible, Brett. Well, I act like a child. Does, do, no, do you think there's? I can no, skirt the rules no, there? Yeah, nope. I'm just looking at the dining hall. Man, this looks so cool. It's nice and rustic. Uh, Pinawa is such a nice spot, too. Very serene in Pinawa. Um, so, yeah, if you buy a coffee, then you, you can help some kids. So that's at uh, Tim Hortons, and again, we'll be at uh, St. James uh, from 11.30 until 12.30. There's only seven of these camps across North America. So that's we're right. blessed to have uh, one of these right here in southern Manitoba, not even an hour and a half outside of Winnipeg. Just opened back in 2015, so it's absolutely spectacular. It's essentially brand new. I'll find out if we can get the steep tea sales, if we can get some money <laughs> attached to this as well. <laughs> yeah, I don't drink coffee. So when I go today, I'll <laughs> have to. We're going to be useless. I'll have to buy one of the uh, the bracelets because you can't. Like that's that is an option.
option. If you don't like coffee, you can still buy a limited edition Camp Day bracelet uh, for two bucks plus tax. So that will be uh, what I'll be doing. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'll... I have, have to have some donuts or something while I'm there, I guess. It's a little force hard, hard feed life. You, the yeah. donuts, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah. Did you see the footage of this uh, tank running down <laughs> the street in Virginia? No, but... <laughs> I was wondering, did Donald Trump, did, did they have that military parade in the middle of the night? <laughs> nobody, nobody announced it? Yeah, sometimes the headlines, because what will happen here is Greg will give me a stack of articles and I'll stiff through them and then I've... So I'm flipping through pages... And then I get to this one, and I see the picture, and then I think, well, that's is that a tank? And then the headline is, police arrest suspect after stolen tank was driven through streets in Virginia. Yep. So many questions. How does one steal a tank? Oh, great question. And all the traditional ways that they would stop a stolen vehicle out the window, right? Spike belt, that's not doing anything against a tank. No. Just runs against it. Drawing your weapons, it's armored, so that's not scaring anybody inside. Can't use the bumper, those things that the cops have in their cars. What do they call those uh, Those things in the front bumper? Where they... Basically like the cow catcher on the front? Yeah. A ram, yeah. whatever they call it. Yeah, where they, they, where they hit this, sort of the corner <laughs> of the car to put it into a spin. Yeah, that's not going to work on a tank. Yeah, it's an actual maneuver that they use anyway. So the vehicle has a maximum speed of 40 miles per hour, about 64 kilometers per hour. No crashes or accidents during the chase. It was actually a soldier from Fort Pickett stole the armored vehicle, which does not carry a weapon. Very important to uh, mention that. The driver of the armored personnel carrier stopped the vehicle and surrendered to Virginia State Police after about two hours. There were some great videos and pictures on social media this morning. So, yeah, so... You think Winnipeg has some weird things happen in the middle of the night? Uh, try Virginia last night. Yep, tank in the street. That is fairly impressive. Is this uh I don't know who this is. I think I know who it is, but somebody confirm it. Now it's David Bowie. David Bowie. Can you guys say that again? One more time for me? David, David Bowie. Bowie. I thought it was David Bowie, but I didn't want to say it. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Influential fashion designer Kate Spade was found dead at a New York apartment yesterday. Police say it was a suicide, and Global's Reed Feist looks at the 55-year-old's legacy and how Spade became a best-selling brand and a household name. The celebrated fashion icon, wife, and mother took her life in her New York City apartment. Her body reportedly discovered by her housekeeper tied to a closet door and apparent hanging. There was a, uh, a suicide note left at the scene. I'm not going to get into the contents of that note. Sources say it was addressed to her 13-year-old daughter who was at school. But her husband and business partner, Andy Spade, the brother of actor David Spade, was in another room. Hi, I'm Kate Valentine Spade. In 2016, Kate Spade gave People magazine a tour of the home, an inside look at the life of a designer who changed women's fashion. I think she brought color and print to not just handbags, but a whole bunch of stuff. It was like so happy and fun, and I think it's actually really hard to like connect that with what just happened because it is so sad. Some color, some textures. Some Spade print, grew up in Kansas City, first working as a journalist for a fashion magazine. She saw a gap in the marketplace. There was a lack of interesting accessories that had a personality but still were very 
elegant and functional. She raided her retirement funds and hit big with a line of sleek handbags. The business grew to shoes, luggage, menswear, and countless more accessories. It was also very accessible. It was a form of luxury that you didn't have to be a multimillionaire to afford. Spade sold the company for more than $100 million in 2006. Last year, the label sold again. The new buyers paid $2.4 billion. Disturbingly, Spade is the third high-end designer to hang herself in the last decade. Alexander McQueen died in 2010, Lorenz Scott four years ago. You don't expect that someone that brings such joy into the world also is maybe burdened with such sorrows. On Twitter today, the company bearing her name offered condolences to her family, saying we will honor all the beauty she brought to this world. Kate Spade was 55. Kim Appelt, celebrity stylist and former Winnipegger, says Kate Spade was indeed iconic. She was known for that whimsy, that bright, cheerful, kind of very fun designs. And I think that's what made her so special and also what made everyone fall in love with those designs, right? She was very much the designer for the everyday woman who was looking for something. And Fang Wan from the University of Manitoba Asper School of Business Marketing agrees that Kate Spade filled a gap in the marketplace. You have these functional bags that are really ugly, and uh, there is not a, a fashion statement. You have these ostentious, very snobbish, you know, extremely expensive, you know, Chanel, and all these bags are too, like, it's not a daily wear. So I think it's, uh, it, it, she's so authentic. I would use authenticity to describe Kate Spade is in a way that it does create a bag that for every day it's accessible, it is approachable, it's authentic, and it, it is a fashion statement, it's fun. So the other thing, because I'm a professor of branding, brand management, and what's really beautiful of Kate Spade, this kind of uh, fashion and lifestyle brand, is that it's not like a traditional marketing and branding that you use a lot of advertising messages. It's actually um, the whole uh, lifestyle product portfolio from the handbag to the kitchen to everything. It actually speaks to a woman, a woman like Kate Spade. It's fun. It's interesting. It's exciting, but it's very approachable. It's really down to earth. And I think that part of branding by itself is pretty avant-garde, um, what, you know, at its day. I mean, now we have a lot of uh, uh, lifestyle brands, but back then it was uh, quite a, a very novel approach. Now, I realize for the guys in the audience, Kate Spade may not have meant much to you. I mean, you know, we don't we don't carry the, the purses or may, maybe, you know, it's a it's a European carry all. But uh, I know that my girlfriend has a Kate Spade purse. I went on my Instagram and I saw a whole bunch of Kate Spade purses pop up in various stories. I, my ex-girlfriend had Kate Spade bags. Um, then they're really nice. You know, I like, you know, when, when a woman's carrying a nice purse, they, the Spade bags are colorful, they're sleek, and uh, I know that they mean a lot to those who carry them. I mean, it's a very personal thing, right? Your purse, it's all your stuff. You know, like I just think about... My little, I've got my little wallet here. I, that's all. I, that's all I get to carry. Uh, but you can carry half your life in your purse. One hundred percent. And if you want to endear yourself to uh, your female betrothed, nothing like bestowing upon them a designer handbag. You will get major points. Whether it's a designer wallet, designer purse, Michael Kors, Kate Spade. Uh, Gucci, Louis coach. Vuitton, Coach. Uh, guys, if you're ever struggling for. A gift idea, that's a, a good fallback. You might have to save your pennies from time to time in order to uh, make that happen, but 
It's a good way to go. Yeah, I've never heard uh, any woman say, I have too many purses. <laughs> 204-780-6868 if you uh, have too many purses we'd like to hear from you so you thought that Metallica had recorded the first black album they didn't not so fast Macklin McGarry with you on a Wednesday morning, a traffic issue, uh, McGarry? Yeah, speaking of not so fast, if you're going this way, you might not be going so fast. Pemina, southbound at the Jubilee underpass in the curb lane, as if that isn't a bad enough spot. There's a stall there. Yay. Southbound Pemina at the Jubilee underpass curb lane. There is a stall. Have fun with that. And again, uh, perimeter issues. Um, that was... Uh, one kilometer west of jo- the junction with Highway 6 because of a crash, and it was a semi-truck rollover there. So, bl- both directions. Have fun with that. But now, what's going on with this uh, Metallica not being the Black Album? Okay, so the Beatles had the White Album, uh-huh. and then in 1991, Metallica released the Black Album. Yeah. Well, Prince actually recorded the Black Album in 1987. It was due to be released... It had no press release. He made no music videos. Zero hype. Called the Black Album. It one is. It is one of the most rare records in, in the world. Even though there had been five hundred thousand copies of this album pressed before the album was to be shipped. Shipped essentially unannounced. Prince changed his mind and ordered all copies of the album destroyed. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, only only the purple one to do that, right? Yeah. Guess what? Several never made it to the incinerator. Jeff Braun was telling you a little bit of the story. Here's a little bit more detail. Drex welcomed record expert and broker Jeff Gold to his early uh, morning show and overnight show early this morning on 680 CJOB. Now, did you ha- ever have any inkling uh, that there would have been a run of these printed in Canada? Like, was there ever any idea that that could have been a possibility? Absolutely not. There were, over the years, uh, three original vinyl albums had ever shown up, and I'd sold one of them about four years ago. And uh, to make a long story short, last year, at the end of last year, someone who had worked at Warner Brothers with me found five of them in their closet they didn't know they had. That's incredible. And they contacted me, and I sold the five for them almost instantly. And the fifth copy went for $42,000, which we thought was just absolutely amazing. So somebody saw the article about that and contacted me from Canada and said, Hey, I used to work for the CBS pressing plant in Canada 30 years ago. And when they canceled that record, uh, I basically rescued a copy from the trash. They were going to be destroyed. And I had it in my collection. I never knew it was worth anything in particular until I saw that article about you're selling for all that money. So considering that you have the, the, the five uh, American press copies and they sold for, you know, you know big ticket value, considering yeah. this is likely, you know, who knows, you know, at this stage, likely the only copy from the Canadian pressing. Certainly the only copy in 30 years that's surfaced. Yeah. Does, does that make it rarer than the American copies? or Absolutely rarer. I don't know that it's more desirable, but it's rarer. <laughs> yeah, it's not like it's the Japanese pressing, right? Well, no, it's not that. People tend to collect. The thing they want the most is the pressing from the country the artist is from. Right. So a Canadian Neil Young record, an American Prince record, an English Beatles record. But 
the fact that there's only one of these makes it really extraordinary, or one of them that's surfaced so far. Now, you, you, you weren't completely sold that this was a, a real item uh, for, for quite a while. What, did you, what steps did you do to verify that this was what this person said it was? Well, you know, I, I, I know a lot about Prince Records. This wasn't something that had even been rumored. Um, so it, it was kind of a shock. But first I looked, uh, I researched who the person was, and they clearly were who they said they were. Hmm. And then he sent me pictures, and I researched albums that CBS in Canada had pressed for Warners right before that and right after that, and it matched up perfectly visually. Mm -hmm. And so I had him send me the record, and uh, I looked at it, and it was clear that it was genuine. And, and, and as soon as you looked at it and went, yep, this is the genuine article, what, what was the feeling that you had straight away, knowing that, that you'd known that there'd been a couple of copies of this around and this coming from Canada was even rarer than that? I thought it was kind of extraordinary that basically myself and this guy were the only people in the world who knew that this thing existed, even though Prince is an extremely highly collected artist. There had been no whisper of this, and it was just kind of crazy. And I called a friend of mine who's another collector and dealer, and I said, you're not going to believe this. And he said, really? But, you know, it clearly was genuine. And, uh, you know, it's, it's no more unbelievable than when I got an email from somebody saying, hey, I found five sealed ones last year, and there were only three known copies in the world. Mm. So what, what, what happens now? This is on the market, going to the highest bidder. How does this work if you want to buy it? No, it's record? actually, I posted it on a uh, record collector website called Discogs, and they sent out a press release. And uh, I woke up this morning, and I had a client of mine saying, I want it. <laughs> so I have it on hold for that person. I'm supposedly going to get paid today. And I have two other people uh, saying, if that falls out, I'm interested. So... That must it's, be. It must feel incredible for the for the person that you've been dealing with in Canada that they sort of. I think read, he's blown away. Yeah. yeah. Well, he read a random article on the internet about a rare record and went, "Hang on a second, I, you know, because we all have record collections, right? And you never really know unless you're a full on, uh, you know, audiophile and collector. You never really know what you could have in your collection and, and, until maybe you see something. You're like, well, hang on a second, I think I have one of those. I mean, it's extraordinarily rare that happens, but it does happen. So here's the question. Eight copies of the eighth one about to be sold of this album. The only one known in Canada on the verge of being sold. I always felt bad putting anything behind the counter on hold. Can you put this on hold? I just got to run to the bank and get some money. Remember those days yep. before Interact? I'll be right back. I promise. I always felt horrible. I still have to. Sorry to interrupt you, but I have to do that almost every time I go to see my barber. Uh, Tony's Barbershop on Regent. Because Joe doesn't have Interact there. Uh, it's just cash. So half the time I get there, like right when my haircut is about to, suck, like when it, my appointment is. Right. So then I say at the end, I got to run down to get to the bank. So that happens almost every time. Sorry, Joe. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to take some beer bottles back. And I'm going today, back actually. Cash. I hey, do have cash on me. Okay, good. Uh, so is this copy of this record, is this album essentially stolen versus rescued from the trash? Is there a fine line here? Kelly Moore, back from a few days off, an extended weekend, if we may call it such. Jeff Braun and Behind the Glass, Jerry here. And uh, 
Well, we were talking about this rare album Prince recorded back in 1987, the Black Album. He recorded it. It was pressed. 500,000 copies made. And then Prince said, you know what? I changed my mind. I don't really want to put that out. Can you please destroy all the copies of said album? And at least eight of them did not make it to the incinerator, including one in Canada. We heard from Jeff Gold, who was in conversation with Drex overnight. Did this record employee, this this employee, this former employee at a Toronto record pressing plant, have the right to save this from the incinerator or rescue it from the trash or... Did he downright steal this album, Kelly Moore? Well, you know, and the other thing I was thinking of, too, is what about the... I don't know if Prince wrote every song on this album, but what about the copyright for the songwriters? Would they not have a say in this as well? But, uh, yeah, I, I tell you, if, if I'm that employee and Prince had ordered every single copy destroyed, then... I'm saying that the employee might have had sticky fingers in the right in the right place. Five finger discount. Yeah, that's why I waited thirty years to put it up, and after waited for Prince to die. Yeah, but apparently nobody knew the value of this until just recently. That's Isn't right. that how it goes? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can't believe it's only worth forty grand. Yeah, you would figure it'd be worth more than that. I for only eight copies that are known to exist. Of a Prince album, you'd think that'd go for a million bucks at least. I would think. I don't know. Maybe it's because in like because it's so easy to make copies now. Like yeah. you just need one guy has to upload it, right? And yeah, then everyone's that's a good got point. it. I don't know. Sure. Well, not only that, I mean, Prince has all the master tapes to every song he ever wrote. He had them all in his mansion, so they're all there. All those songs exist somewhere else other than on these albums. Oh, and they will be released. Absolutely, right? they will be. Yeah. This, this, this will album will them. probably come out on on mass. In the next few years. I read that in his vault. He's got a couple of dozen albums worth of unreleased material. So we could get all sorts of Prince music yet. So is this stolen uh, goods or? Uh, uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So crime does pay. <laughs> 27500 US apparently for one record album. Why well, can't you guys record an album I could steal and make some money? <laughs> Hey, all of our stuff is priceless, okay? Yeah, the, the record company doesn't even wait to ask to have it destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> that burning smell every the, morning. The reel's on fire as yeah, you're recording it. CG will be burning all the <laughs> Mackling and McGarry <laughs> tapes every single morning. Brett, what do you think about this one? I'm just looking. Is So this album actually did end up being released on November 22nd, 1994, uh, sometimes called the Funk Bible. It was originally planned for release December 8, 1987, and was to appear in an entirely black sleeve with no title or even a credit to Prince. And uh, and then in the hidden... I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page here. Yeah. Uh, so I guess it did go on to be released, but the, this original printing uh, is pretty cool. Now, sorry, what was... <laughs> What was your question, Greg? I'm, I'm falling down the rabbit hole as we speak. It's all right, Brett. I just wanted, like, th this is clearly stolen goods. Uh, I don't know about that. No? No, if you take something out of the trash. Yeah, it's one man's trash is another man's treasure. So, I don't Depends know. Depends if the dumpster was outside in an alley or if it's still no, in the record was, company. It, I think it was in the record company premises. If I, I heard a bit of that interview that Drex had with Jeff Gold. And it sounds like this was just kind of thrown away, but it wasn't destroyed. Yeah, and so, it's tough, too, because it's a Prince album, so it's a gift to the world. 
right? <laughs> You're uh, justifying now. Yeah. And yeah. Then, so in this case, I, 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 I have a hard time looking at anybody who managed to get their hands on a copy of this with uh, disdain because at this point, you know, we, we I, hey, if I had a copy of that, I'd be feel so blessed to have it, to have this rare piece of Prince memorabilia. And second, um, if I sold it, 40000 bucks would be nice. Yeah, well, for sure. Is anything you've ever had been around that maybe slipped through your fingertips and you go, oh, man, I had one of those? No. I sold all of my Transformers uh, at a, like a yard sale for, I don't know, a couple of bucks each, and I regret it every day. <laughs> Not that any, any of them would have been worth any money because I beat those things up pretty bad, but it just would be nice to still have a couple of them um, because they're, they're precious memories, if anything, yeah. right? They're not so much for the collectability factor, just it would be nice to have an old Transformer sitting on the table. I think I still have my Optimus Prime somewhere in a box somewhere. Oh, in lucky. a box? Yeah. You no, are. No, you, not, not, not did a you say geek? Box. Did you say geek? No, I said no, lucky. Not, oh, lucky. No, in a box, not, not the geek. box. <laughs> no, not no, the no. box. I have my Thundercracker Transformer in a plastic bag somewhere. And Thundercracker <laughs> was uh, Jet, right? He was like Starscream? Yep. yep. Okay. Blue. So when you did that and you put it in the plastic bag, were no, no, you no, trying it, to preserve it for... No, no, Mom's like, here's your junk, I put it in a bag. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do so, you have any hidden uh, collectible gems? Oh, I have all sorts of stuff, man. Uh, too many things to to mention. Uh, you know, a variety of those McFarlane figures. Uh, really? Hockey figures. Oh yeah, and and in the in the package still everything wow. from Bobby Hall to Nikolai Habibulin to Dustin Bufflin to a uh, full size Wayne Gretzky. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm full sized. Well, like six foot like, two? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest one that they made. It's about oh. a foot tall. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, you know. You could open up the Mackling Museum. I got a little bit of a, a little bit of a shrine for sure. But I think it all stemmed from when my mom gave away all my World Hockey Association cards to my, uh, to my cousin. She oh, just God. handed them to him one day. Were they all signed? No, they were not signed, oh. but they were all in perfect condition. How old were you? I was in grade four. So what is that, about 10, 11? I came home, uh. and my mom finally decided to clean the house, and uh, that was where she went, was to give away my hockey card. Camp Whiteshell. This is the Tim Hortons camp that is in Manitoba. There's only seven of these camps across North America. Today is camp day where if you buy a coffee, you can change a life. It is that simple. To tell us about Camp Whiteshell, we have Justin Dubrail, who joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Justin, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing very well. Uh, camp Whiteshell, for those who are unfamiliar with this, where is it? Uh, yeah, so we're located right in Whiteshell Provincial Park, um, just about an hour and a half outside of uh, Winnipeg, um, and uh, right on Sylvia Lake. It sounds like an absolutely gorgeous spot. I've seen pictures of it. It looks absolutely spectacular. Uh, is this the, the newest of the eight Tim Hortons camps, uh, Justin? Yeah, so we opened in uh, 2015 uh, was uh, when we opened our doors to campers. And since then, we've served about 6,500 campers um, at our location um, and uh, across the foundation. Um, actually, at the end of this summer, uh, we'll have served 257,000 campers um, since 1975 when our first camp opened. And 
How do the the proceeds from Tim Hortons Camp Day, what exactly will those proceeds do? Yeah, so that helps to send uh, campers both to our summer camp program, but also our year-round school program called the Community Leaders Program um, that bring local students uh, out to camp for a four-day, three-night experience um, at no cost to both the schools um, as well as our summer campers. How do we end up with a camp here in, in Manitoba? Because I see that uh, the other six camps, there's one in Perry Sound, Ontario. That was the, the first one. Uh, another one yeah. in Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia, uh, is that Tatama, Tatama, I don't know how to say this. Tatama Goosh? <laughs> it's Tatama yeah, yeah. Okay. Kananaskis, uh, yeah. Alberta. Uh, there's one in Quebec. There's one in, and then oddly enough, there's one in Kentucky. And then another yeah. one in St. George, Ontario, and then Pinawa, Manitoba. So how did we go about getting that opened here in, in Manitoba? I mean, Manitoba is such a beautiful province. Um, it's really a, a gem in the center of Canada. And, uh, yeah, it's um, what we wanted to do was um, give an experience for our campers, not just in Manitoba, but across, from across Canada and the U.S., to experience, uh, you know, the beauty of Manitoba, um, especially in the White Shell. Um, it's such a, an amazing area and such a privilege to be there that uh, we wanted to share it with, uh, with everyone else. Justin Dubrail is the general manager of Camp White Shell, where Tim Hortons will be sending kids to have a memorable experience as part of Camp Day today. Uh, proceeds going to support this incredible endeavor. Tell us about the two camps that you run up at uh, Camp White Shell. Um, yeah, so uh, we have two signature programs that we run. Um, it's the Youth Leadership Program, which is our summer program, um, and then the Community Leaders Program, which is that the school program. Um, and so uh, altogether, we serve about 2,800 campers uh, a year at camp. Um, uh, and uh, working with the Winnipeg School Division, uh, the Manitoba Métis Federation, um, as well as some campers from Northwest Ontario. Um, uh, and uh, we serve about 100 campers that come from uh, Kenora and Dryden, um, so really um, across provincial lines. Why are these camps, uh, these camp experiences important for kids? They really learn life skills. They come out and not only have fun um, and get to do things like archery and canoeing, um, but they also learn teamwork and responsibility and, um, you know, how to manage conflict. Um, such essential life skills that um, sometimes, uh, you know, working with our amazing campers, they come from low-income families um, and high-priority neighborhoods, and they don't always have the same um, experiences available to them as their peers. Um, and so we want to make sure that, um, you know, as they grow and develop, um, they not only have the same experiences, um, but they're able to uh, learn and grow and, and learn these life skills um, to be um, engaged in the future, you know, to be able to go on to post-secondary, to be able to go on um, and be job ready, um, you know, as they go through, you know, junior high and high school. Justin, one final question before we wrap up here. I'm looking at the, the list of camp features for Tim Horton Camp Whiteshell. There's something here called Gaga Ball. What's Gaga yeah. Ball? 
um, so um, it uh, is um, an octagon. Um, I think almost like MMS, um, but uh, we do uh, dodgeball within there. So it's below the knee um, and uh, very much dodgeball, but in a, an octagon. Um, it's super cool. The kids really love it. Um, and it's quite a trend, uh, at least among uh, camp. <laughs> well, thank you for this, Justin. I know we won't bump into Lady Gaga at uh, Tim Hortons up on St. James Street, <laughs> but maybe we'll just bump into you and uh, Brett and I are there later on this morning. And keep your distance because Brett and I haven't served in a long time, so hot beverages <laughs> in our hands might not be the best idea. Thanks for this, uh, Justin. Great to meet you. You too. Have a great day. Happy Camp Day. Justin Dubrail, General Manager of Camp Whiteshell in Pinawa, Manitoba, in the Whiteshell. Once again, it is Tim Horton's Camp Day. If you buy a coffee, you can change a life. 100% of the proceeds of hot coffee sales at participating Tim Horton's restaurants across Canada will be donated to the Tim Horton Children's Foundation, and the funds directly help kids from low-income homes go on a life-changing experience at a Tim Horton camp. With one day to go until voting day, the buzz in the Ontario election campaign trail is about the Ford family feud. Tory leader Doug Ford is denying allegations by his late brother's widow that he mishandled Rob Ford's estate and destroyed the value of the family business. Ford has faced controversy at nearly every turn of the campaign, from questions around the behavior of certain candidates to allegations he sold bogus party memberships. To talk more about the Ontario election, we are joined by Bill Kelly, longtime host on CHML in Hamilton, one of our chorus affiliates. Bill Kelly, good morning to you. How are you doing, guys? We're doing really well. How are you? You must be excited for tomorrow and to see how this all comes out in the wash. It's like doing about uh, 600. Excited. We're, not, we're not even whelmed. I'm not, certainly not overwhelmed. You're not, not overwhelmed by the, the choices before us right now. This is, this is ridiculous. Maybe we can have an extension of the campaign and somebody else can come along. I don't oh know. Oh, my. Bill, you're, uh, you sound a little bitter about uh, where we've ended up here. Well, there are three things going on here. I mean, first and foremost, we knew that Ontario voters wanted to get rid of Kathleen Wynne. I mean, that's that was pretty obvious. Well, it was obvious a year and a half or so ago. Uh, unfortunately, the Premier just seemed to recognize that about a week or so ago when she conceded that she wasn't going to form the next government. Uh, to which case, most people said, well, it's about time you figured that out. So anyway, we have two choices. We've got uh, Andrea Horvath in the NDP and, and of course, Doug Ford and, and the PC party. And, and as you guys have been reading about, it's national media story now. I mean, uh, this has uh, been controversy upon controversy, actually for both leaders. Uh, the Ford family thing is the latest thing to go on here. But there's a, here's a fun fact for you guys. Uh, 27% of the progressive conservative candidates running here are either under investigation or being sued or both. What? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry to These laugh. Good times in Ontario, really good times. No, uh, and I, Andrea Horvath, of course, is dealing with a, a number of candidates uh, that are running under the NDP banner. Uh, one of whom, of course, has slagged Canadian veterans and said they were warmongers. Uh, she refuses to wear poppies on Remembrance Day. We got two or three other MPPs, sitting MPPs, that are running for re-election, that are facing uh, workplace harassment allegations from uh, from some of their staff. Uh, what else have we got here? It goes right down the list. A guy from northern Ontario that thinks mining should be banned. I mean, on and on it goes. So, so this, is, this is just a cornucopia of colossal clowns. 
alliteration. <laughs> well said, Bill. Well said. Now I'm looking at one headline here that says the GTA is poised once again to play kingmaker in the election. And it says the subheadline, new Democrats are poised to do well, but the PCs are in a position to do better. Even after what you just told us, the PCs are in a, in a better position. Well, it's, uh, you know, none of the above. And I know there's actually a party called none of the above that's, uh, that's registered and is running in this. But the, the, the point here, guys, is the, the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area, is the kingmaker in every election here. Uh, whoever wins the Toronto area itself and what they call the, you know, the GTA, the surrounding area, Mississauga, Markham, places like that, uh, there are about 65 seats available right there. And that's, that's, right, that's almost a majority right there. So you can win the majority of those. You're going to form the government. That's how Kathleen Wynne did it. I mean, if you... Look at the map from four years ago when she won a majority government. Uh, she did great uh, in the in the Toronto area and up the 401, you know, around uh, Kingston and places like that. Not so great in the rest of the province. And the same thing's happening here. The NDP support is is everywhere except in the GTA. Now, if they're going to form a government or even make this close, they're going to have to win some seats in the Toronto area. And that, that's pretty iffy at this stage. Bill, we're uh, seeing polls that show the Conservatives and the NDP essentially in a dead heat, but based on where those votes come from, it is plausible that the NDP may in fact win the popular vote and not form a government minority or majority. Well, how, haven't we seen this show before? Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy in the White House, I mean, was uh, uh, you know the, the the recipient of that very same situation. As a matter of fact, Doug Ford, the the leader of the PC party here. Uh, actually won the leadership in the same way. I mean, Christine Elliott was his main rival. She won the popular vote. She won the, the vote in most of the ridings that were, you know, represented at that convention. But Ford, by some crazy uh, calculation, ended up being the winner. So he's the leader of the party. So it's it's really bizarre. I guess, you know, the votes are supposed to count, but it really it's where the votes are that really matters here. Now, if the Liberals lose recognized party status after the election, um, what's going to happen to that party in your province? Well, Kathleen Wynne is moving to Manitoba. Are you guys prepared for that? No, no, <laughs> no she's not, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, well, if they lose party status, I mean, they're in big trouble. I mean, the, the parties are supposed to rejuvenate themselves. I mean, you're supposed to be able to read the writing on the wall and say maybe it's time for a change. I mean, Dalton McGuinty, uh, the liberal leader that started this 15-year run way back when, uh, saw the writing on the wall and realized that, hey, look, at voters aren't really crazy about me. So he stepped down. And Kathleen Wynne, of course, was the one that ended up doing that uh, and taking over the reins. There was a big push about a year or so ago to pressure her from within the party to resign. And she resisted that and said, no, I'm staying on. I can do this. Well, she can't. So, I mean, now it, it implodes. So, you know, they're right back to square one now. There's one projection I saw from one of the CBC polls that said they didn't only get one seat. I don't think it's going to be that drastic, but they could well fall below seven or eight seats from their, their current majority government. So it's, it's going to be humbling, let me put it that way. Well, if the campaign wasn't enough political theater for you, I suspect watching the results come in tomorrow night will be uh, just as dramatic, uh, if not uh, underwhelming, uh, not even whelmed Bill Kelly. From Global Radio, CHML in Hamilton has been our guest. Bill, thanks for this. Join us anytime. You betcha. Great talking to you guys. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much, Bill Kelly. Seven. <laughs> I'm not even whelmed. <laughs> I wrote that down. I'm putting that in my quote book. Yeah, we totally got to steal that. Well said, Bill. We're only hours away from knowing for sure what Winnipeg's new soccer team 
will be called. The Winnipeg Football Club and Canadian Premier League are expected, well, not expected, they will reveal the new team's name, colors, and jerseys at Investors Group Field this afternoon. And in studio, we are joined this morning by Canadian Premier League President Paul Byrne. Mr. Byrne, good morning and welcome to you, sir. Good morning, gents. Good morning, Winnipeg. Thanks for having me on. This is a very exciting day for a community that's been without professional soccer for some time now. And when you look at the Canadian Premier League team roster, it's a pretty complete league going from coast to coast. Who's been confirmed so far, Paul? Uh, So far in the last uh, month, we've unveiled York 9 Football Club, which is just north of Toronto. Uh, Halifax Wanderers and Cavalry FC, which is uh, based in Calgary. And uh, I don't want to reveal anything too early, but we're going to be in Edmonton on Friday. Oh, uh, Edmonton, just to check out the mall or what? Exactly, yeah, (laughs) to check out the mall. Fantastic. Well, uh, lots of anticipation uh, for a long time because for, for probably a decade or more, probably two decades, more kids in Canada play soccer than play hockey. So no shortage of love for this game in our country. Absolutely. This is, uh, it, and it's been that way for the last 20 years. The, the, uh, it's been the number one participation sport in the country. And uh, the, way, the way that Canada is, is evolving, you know, we replace 1% of our population and we fuel our economy through bringing in uh, uh, newcomers. And all of, the, you know, all of these people are coming from countries where soccer is number one or number two. So we're, um, we're, we're really feeding um, a demand that's already there. Is there any sport out there that is as accessible as soccer? Like, I think when you think about it, all you need is a ball. That's exactly right. All you need is a ball. You know, in in, uh, in grade school in Toronto, when I was growing up, we used to play, we called it foot hockey. But it was really soccer. We didn't realize we were playing soccer, but we had a tennis ball, <laughs> and we had, you know, two winter boots over there, and that was our net. We were playing soccer. Yeah, that's all you need. Uh, it just uh, doesn't matter what kind of a ball it is. Now, the you gave a couple of teams that are confirmed, but you're in the process of talking to a lot of communities, aren't you? Correct. There are uh, there's there's actually 22 now, 22 communities in dialogue with us. Um, right now, we're just focused on getting launched. So we're going to start next year in April, uh, and we're going to play from April to October, and we're going to have somewhere between six and eight teams. So what type of player can we expect to see on the field? Is Are there some analogies you can give us to maybe development leagues or other professional leagues? Of course, we've got the Independent Baseball, American Association, Gold Eyes in town. We also have the Manitoba Moose, the AHL affiliate of the NHL Jets, and then the CFL. So we've got the full gamut of professional sports, the top of the top to the, the developmental leagues. Where, where are you going to fit in here? So soccer globally is a little different than everywhere else. Every nation has its own domestic league. And uh, as a general statement, teams don't play in other people's leagues. So the situation that we have with three Canadian teams playing in MLS is kind of an anomaly. That doesn't really happen in other, in other countries. So our league is top division for Canada. And, uh, and you can expect to see a lot of Canadians, you know, a lot of Manitobans on that pitch. And uh, that's really the magic. This league is for Canadians by Canadians. So that, that's our real mandate about improving the game in this country and creating opportunities for young Canadians to aspire to be playing pro. And, uh, and I think, you know, whatever level we start at will improve year over year. But the, the key here is to get started and to let that, that soccer culture start to emerge, both with the youngsters, but also um, with the adults and the fans in the stands. You mentioned uh, the three teams in the MLS, and that's uh, the Montreal Impact, uh, what is it, Toronto FC, and then the Vancouver Whitecaps FC. Um, what have, 
is having three Canadian teams in Major League Soccer has that helped uh, improve the game's exposure in this country or, or the people's love of the game? Uh, I, absolutely, I, I think they, they've, they've all three have been an overwhelming success, and, and you, you just nailed it. It particularly as it pertains to the culture of the game. It's really proven the concept that people want to go out and enjoy the game the same way that they can in every other nation on the planet. Um, where uh, it's been a bit more of a challenge is it hasn't created those opportunities for young Canadians to to aspire to play. There's only a handful of Canadians playing on each. I mean, there's only three three teams, so even if they filled out their rosters, it still wouldn't be a, a large number of spots. Um, so really, our league is now saying, okay, well, let's bring that culture to all of the other um, uh, communities across the country and really create an opportunity for um, the entire industry to develop. Now, Brett, you mentioned the Winnipeg Fury, and I was at the very first ever Winnipeg Fury game at the University of Manitoba Stadium once upon a time. That was a natural grass pitch. Wasn't an outstanding facility at all. Was, you know, anybody that's been to University Stadium, it's a grandstand with benches, but, you know, basically two by sixes strapped together. <laughs> and then uh, the Fury did play in front of some impressive crowds at that facility and at old Winnipeg Stadium on a horrible carpet. You can't even call it a field. You are going to have a first-class facility, maybe one of the best stadiums in all of Canada for uh, this Winnipeg uh, iteration and this Winnipeg uh, franchise. Absolutely. I, I was standing on the on the pitch, because that's what we call it in soccer. I was standing oh, yeah, on the sorry, pitch on last the pitch. night. Sorry, sorry. And uh, I was standing on the pitch at Investor Group Field last night and just marveling at, like, that That place is a jewel. So that, that's something that this community should be really proud of, and it'll be... It'll be the top uh, venue in our league for sure. And when is this going to launch? Uh, we kick off in April of 2019. What are what's it going to cost for a family to go to a game? Tickets are going to range from like the average price will be about 25 bucks, which means that there's going to be some from. I'm uh, I'm not speaking for the the club here because I can't remember the prices, but you know somewhere from 15 to 40 dollars, and there's going to be 14 games in the season. Right on. Well, hey, Paul Byrne, thanks for stopping by. And what time's the official announcement today? So. Two o'clock, the gates open at Investors Group Field, and uh, right down on the on the pitch, um, there's going to be some ceremony, and there's going to be the big reveal of the uh, the club identity, and then the, the the crest that the the players will wear. Paul Byrne, Premier League President, Canadian Premier League President, thank you very much for joining us today on 680 CJOB. Are you aware of the fire hazards in your home? Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service has released information on the five main causes of fire in Winnipeg. So to give us those details, we're joined live by Global's Nikki Judy. Nikki, good morning to you. Good morning, guys. How are you? Doing fine. Uh, there are fewer things more frightening than the idea maybe of leaving your home and coming home or coming back and finding your home destroyed by fire, finding the fire department in your front yard battling a blaze. This is, uh, I think for a lot of people, one of their biggest fears, yes? Especially when those causes, what might have sparked the blaze in your home, could have been preventable. And, you know, this is why, you know, we spoke with firefighters to find out what those top five causes are in the city of Winnipeg. And some of them might shock you. Um, they include dryers, extension cords, cigarettes, cooking oil, an arson. I know when I heard extension cords, that one kind of raised my eyebrow because I was like, oh crap, I use an extension cord every single day. And let me tell you, after I spoke with firefighters, I unplugged. So what is it about the extension cord? Uh, like, is it a particular item or just anything? 
So apparently, and I'm guilty of this, and I'm sure a lot of people are, a lot of people are using extension cords as a permanent source of electricity, which is a big no-no, according to firefighters. Not only are they using it as a permanent source of electricity, they're also overloading them. And now a lot of people in their homes also try to, you know, hide those cords from extension cords by covering them up with a rug, putting them in the cupboard, or even putting them underneath their couch. And firefighters say, you know, all of that can cause a fire because if something were to spark on that extension cord, you've now, you know, attached to a combustible material like a couch or a rug. And that's what can, you know, cause the fire to spread. Now, Nikki, I was actually speaking to a good friend of mine who's doing extensive renovations at their home. And uh, they were telling me how plugged and how clogged the lint uh, like the, the the exhaust for their dryer was just absolutely jam packed with lint. This is something that we should be paying attention to far more often than we do. I think for most of us, it's uh, nothing we pay attention to whatsoever. Well, definitely. And firefighters actually call it a recipe for disaster. Because think about it. Your dryer is this hot source of energy. And now you have a little trap full of lint. And it's just asking for it to spark and flare up. And again, there's hoses connected to your dryer. And that, you know, kind of can cause it once it goes on fire, it literally is connected to your home and it's just going to run through the walls, you know? Now, as far as uh, cigarettes are concerned, does this have to do just with careless disposal of the butts? That's absolutely right. So careless disposal of smoking materials, not just the butts, but also if you use, say, a match to light your cigarette, if you just kind of flick it on your grass and it's a dry day, guess what? That can spark. And a lot of people actually like to butt out in their, their planters, like if they have planters around their homes. But if those planters contain things like peat moss, peat moss is flammable. So if you were to butt out in a planter with peat moss, again, that's another cause of a fire. You're just kind of waiting for that fire to spark, especially on a super dry day. Wow. You know what? Brett and I both looked at each other with our eyes open wide going, yeah. And I don't know if I ever would have thought of that, the idea that we have must have a dozen planters around our house. Nobody smokes in our house, but uh, for sure there's peat moss in the soil that we that you know that we plant our flowers in. Uh, Nikki, what else is uh, is the leading cause of uh, household fires in the city, Winnipeg? One of the mo- most important messages that um, I actually spoke with Jason Federo. He's a fire investigations coordinator, and one of the most important tips that he had is if you're cooking, say example with oil. Don't leave the kitchen to fold laundry. Don't leave the kitchen to vacuum. Stay in the kitchen because it only takes a matter of seconds for something to happen with that oil. Or even if you were putting something in the oven and it's going to take like, you know, a half an hour and you walk away from it, set a timer so that you remember that you have something in the oven because, you know, we're all very busy people. We can all forget. And something as simple as leaving chicken fingers in too long in the oven can cause your home to fire, to burn. Well, I, I'll give you a real-life example here, Nikki, and I don't, uh, you know, it's kind of a funny story, but it could have gone way be- way worse. I once put a pizza in the, in the oven, uh, and I set it to broil by accident instead of 400 or whatever it was, uh, and I smoked out the entire house. The pizza came out like a, like a hockey puck. Um, so it was hilarious because I caught it, but had I left it for even five more minutes, it could have been uh, a very terrible situation in the home. So it's not to, not to be trifled with. No, and again, you know, it's just one of those innocent things. You were making a pizza and you hit the wrong button. All right. Nikki and Judy, when will we see more on this and hear more on this uh, throughout the day? 
We'll definitely have a full story for uh, everyone tonight at Global News at 6. All right, Nikki Judy, thank you very much for joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you for tuning in. It's Mackling and McGarry. I'm Greg. He's Brett. And today you could be helping send kids to camp just by grabbing a double-double. It's Tim Hortons Camp Day, which means 100% of the proceeds from your hot coffee will go towards enabling kids have a fulfilling experience at a Tim Hortons camp. So to tell us about what kinds of experience camps will offer kids, we are joined live in studio by Zoe Tantonko, who is a graduate of the Youth Leadership Program and now second-year counsellor. And uh, should we say hello as well to Justin Dubrale, who we spoke to earlier at uh, 707. Hello again, Justin. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, sir. Nice to see you in person and nice to meet you, Zoe. Hi, thank you for having me. So the uh, you went through the uh, youth leadership program what did it mean to you honestly it meant the world to me like going as a summer camper um it was like an experience that i thought was like a one-off kind of deal uh but when i got like the mail that saying hey like you can come back as a youth leadership program like i was beyond excited i'm like yes this is what i want like i had such an amazing time uh such amazing memories i'm like i'm totally coming back again like no doubt about it <laughs> well we've been visiting with zoe for the last little bit and this is legit she is as high energy as she sounds <laughs> this is uh your special individual zoe which camp did you go to first and tell us a little bit you're not from manitoba you're going to be counseling for the second summer in a row here in manitoba but tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you managed to, to get to camp and which one you went to first uh, once upon a time. Uh, so I'm originally from uh, Richmond, B.C., uh, so that's like right beside Vancouver. Uh, so the first camp that I went to was the actually Kananaskis, Alberta camp, and I went there as a summer camper, and then I transitioned into a youth leadership program, then I went to Onondaga, then I went to Prairie Sound, Whiteshell, and just recently I've been to the Quion camp for scouting, uh, scouting for them. So I've been to actually five out of seven camps. So when you went to the camp as just as a just a kid going to the camp, how do you how do you get involved in that? Like, do you have to apply for it? Um, so how I got uh, started to get involved in it, uh, it was uh, my elementary school teacher actually recommended me to go to it uh, because uh, she thought like, oh, I'm an out upbeat, like outgoing person who falls into the category of uh, helping the underprivileged kids. So I fit into all of those categories and they thought that I would enjoy going to this camp. So they recommended me to go and like I am beyond grateful for them to recommend me because honest to God, like uh, this was an like not really on purpose that I actually got to go because what happened was a girl just refused to go and didn't want to go. So I just got sent in by like a whim uh, because the other girl didn't want to go but then I'm grateful because I'm here I am today well I can tell you it's been over 30 years since I was at a summer camp but I still have friendships from those camps that go back you know even just for a week at a time going back to the Legion in in Manitoba went to the Legion athletic camps and I was in the football camp but it was either three or four years in a row and still have friendships from that so talk about some of the friendships you've harvested uh, in your time as being a part of this incredible camp. It's really a camp system spearheaded by Tim Hortons. Yeah, so, like, the amount of friends that you make, like, my, I can hands down tell you, my best friend is from this camp, and, like, she was also a camp uh, counselor here last year. And, like, the fact that we, Tim Hortons Children Foundation gets, like, 
campers from all around North America and brings them into one central location, it just like makes you have a bond because like, hey, I'm from BC. I got a friend in Nova Scotia. Like I find it like super cool that we it brings it about around like so much kids from around like Canada and some from America to one central location so we can have fun, make memories. And like those are like <clears throat> one of the biggest things that I, I love about camp, making friends and talking and just like having a great time. So when you're at Camp Whitechell as a counselor, uh, what kind of stuff do you do with the kids who are going to be there? So the stuff that we like to do, we like doing like uh, kind of leadership games, uh, get to know you games, kind of icebreaker games. We like to break them out of their shell and we like to encourage them to have like challenges by choice. So to push them over the boundaries, but as long as they're comfortable with it. Uh, we also bring them out on wilderness expeditions. So we take them outside of the camp, uh, Whitechwell specifically and some other camps, take them outside of the camp and we bring them out on like uh, like four-day, five-day canoe trips, uh, like getting on all the way up to seven-day canoe trips and just taking them out tripping, uh, giving them wilderness skills and just like uh, making even more bonding memories because being out in the wilderness, you only have so many people. (laughs) Yeah, you have to count on one another. And and Justin, it sounds as though this is just more than just getting away to play some games. This is really about developing future leaders if if I'm tuned into this right. Yeah, definitely. So um, the thing that we really try to inspire and empower our youth are to live a life without limits. Um, And we try to instill those skill sets within them so that they can go back to their communities um, and not only be able to lift themselves up, but be able to lift their community members, their families, um, and really make a positive change um, that really is a ripple effect. Um, and uh, so it's you're right; it's not just um, not just archery and, and canoeing, which is super fun and amazing and, and great skill sets in themselves. Um, but it's about those um, intrinsical skill sets um, that sometimes our campers just don't have the opportunities to explore and to take on. Um, and uh, you know, like teamwork, like um, uh, conflict uh, ma- management. Um, like responsibility or even motivation, you know, to be able to motivate oneself. Um, so, yeah, you, you hit that nail right on the head. Our guests in studio are Justin Dubrail. He is the general manager of Camp Whiteshell in Pinawa, and Zoe Tantanko, graduate of the Youth Leadership Program and now second-year counselor at Camp Whiteshell. And we got to wrap this up in a moment here on this camp day, Zoe, but with, had you not gone to the camp that first time, where do you think your life path would have taken you instead? Uh, 100%, I will not be the same person that I was, that I am today. I'm not, I wouldn't be as confident. I wouldn't be as passionate. I wouldn't be as driven. I wouldn't be who I am and who I am as, like, I love myself, like, who I am right now. And I don't think without this, like, camp experience, I wouldn't be who I am today. And just the fact that, like, I'm passionate, I'm driven, and, like, it all like stems from the youth leadership program. It honestly does change lives. And like, I just think that like, if everyone had an opportunity like this, like everyone would thrive. Absolutely incredible to meet you both. Zoe, thank you for this. And uh, we will uh, definitely see you guys later on, right? Are you going to be at, uh, are you going to be around, Justin? I will, yeah. Okay, fantastic. (laughs) Okay, so we'll see you at 980 St. James for Tim Hortons Camp Day. Once again, every hot coffee purchased, 100% of the proceeds will go to the Tim Hortons Children's Foundation to help youth from low-income homes go on a life-changing experience at a Tim Horton camp. And we have one of those right here in southern Manitoba in Pinawa. Brent 
Bellamy joins us in studio now, architect with number 10 Arca, uh, architect group or, and uh, urban affairs columnist with the Winnipeg Free Press and much, much more. The bilateral funding agreement announced between the federal government and the provincial governments Monday stands to boost Winnipeg transit spending and funding significantly. At least that is the expectation of Winnipeg Mayor Brian Bowman. And Brent, when I saw that headline and read some of the details, it got me excited. Do we have rights to be excited about this funding agreement? I sure hope so. I think it's great that they've actually set aside $530 million or whatever it is and specifically targeted transit because if you do a Often it, it comes down to priorities and the different governments of the time. It's a 10-year agreement, so we're going to see a shift. Or <laughs> There will be at least two elections in, in between. <laughs> Sorry. Um, not prejudging anything. Um, so having it so there's 530 specifically earmarked for transit, I think, is great. And hopefully the, um, the province and city can get on board and really leverage that money into something that could be transformational for the whole city. What do you think that uh, we need to do to be transformational as far as transit is concerned? You know, it's a lot of money. I would, I think there's sort of two priorities, and I know this is transit's priorities anyways, but I would love to see a focus on sort of broadening who, who takes the bus, broadening that sort of demographic. There's a stigma in Winnipeg, no question, on who takes the bus. But if you go to Calgary, suits take the bus. Everybody takes, or it's not the bus, it's LRT, which is a big difference. And so that's really where I see the opportunity for our BRT system, I think it could change who takes the bus. And to me, that means being more frequent, having better better service. And I would love to see, as we grow the, the BRT network, I would actually love to see a different type of bus on the, on the BRT. You can buy low-platform buses, accordion buses, that look like they're sexier, to be honest, and that's what gets people to ride. It, it, the, it's, it feels like it's upper class. About, I would love to see that happen. <clears throat> what about GPS and the buses? Like, for example, uh, I have a bus stop right outside my apartment. Yeah. It's so convenient. I, if I want to catch a bus, I walk out of my door, across the street, and there it is. Yeah. Uh, and it says it should, let's say, 4.35 p.m. is when it's supposed to come. Yeah, but vanishes. that can mean anywhere from 4.31 p.m. to 4.50 p.m. And I have no idea when the bus is going to come. And then usually what happens is two buses show up at the yeah. same time because the first one was stuck in traffic. So it would be nice if I could pull up the transit app yeah. and see where that bus is on the map. That drives me crazy as well. And sometimes it doesn't even show up. It's like, well, where did it go? It said it was supposed to be here two minutes ago. Um, that's the other piece of it is I think the uh, frequency and convenience of the bus. You're not going to grow the ridership until people are confident it's going to be there. And and really increasing the number of... It's simply just buying more buses is a big piece of it. But I agree with you also, this, this other layer of technology that could make us... You know, they do it on subways. You know the subway is coming two minutes from now, and it always does because of the reliability. I'm going to bring up an even more frustrating example. You can track your meal on Skip the Dishes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I know exactly where the driver is, but you don't know where a 40-foot-long bus is. I know. Come on, we've really got to catch up on Couldn't this Couldn't you just front. put an iPhone in the bus driver's pocket? <laughs> like, honestly, you, you know where I am right now because it's in my pocket. It seems like easy technology, and I agree, that would be transformational. It's such a simple thing, just knowing, because every time you go out there, Especially in the middle of winter, it's a 15-minute yes. wait, and it's like, well, I'm not taking the bus next time. This is terrible. So if we, if we had that predictability, 
it would really be a, a big change. And I know they tried that with the telebus system, yeah. and you know, <clears throat> it worked to a certain extent. And I give them credit for for trying to to be on the cutting edge. But we, we've fallen so far behind. And when you mentioned these sexier uh, vehicles, when I worked at New Flyer, worked on a project with Community Transit in Everett, Washington, oh, yeah. and they had sixty foot articulated buses uh, to the point where the last argument we had was about figuring out a, a hubcap that could cover mm. half of the front wheel because that was a sticking point for them because they felt that that would be the key piece in making their vehicle look more like a train. Yep. And it would just eliminate that last little bit of stigma that this was a, essentially a bus. Well, when you take a look, go to the website for Community Transit in Everett, Washington. Look up the SWIFT system. Yeah. And these buses were built 11, 12 years ago. They look like trains. Yeah. And uh, they can take, they've modified them so you can take your bikes on them. There are lots of different ways to go. And clearly we have one of the leaders on the planet in terms of transit technology and building buses here in Winnipeg at New Flyer. I just, you know, when Paul Subri came out and said, we'd be willing and open to have a conversation about perhaps financing electric buses for yeah. Winnipeg. Yeah. I'm thinking, uh, why aren't we all over this? Yeah, it's true. We're so lucky to have those industries in our city. Let's be global leaders on that. And, you know, rapid transit isn't going to be effective until there's a network. It's like all other transit transportation systems. We need a full network. And that's what hopefully this 1.3 billion or whatever it ends up being, hopefully that gets us to make rapid transit actually functional. It's not just one line to the university, but it's a whole grid with great, you know, upscaled uh, cars. I think it, it could be something that, that really changes the, the idea of what taking transit is in Winnipeg. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry, along with Brent Bellamy joining us in studio. And uh, Brent, fortunately, we have uh, our text message line is jam-packed with people submitting bombers <laughs> in order to win season tickets. Otherwise, I know we would be lighting up the text message lines with regard to our next topic. The headline at Global News and CJOB.com, Portage of Maine could reopen by fall of 2019, an RFP that uh, is going out to basically request, hey, how do we do this, uh, was released essentially yesterday, late mm -hmm. yesterday afternoon. I know this is something that you'd like to see. Why are we so resistant to this as a community? Um, we are. We have built a city for the car, number one. So our priorities lie with getting around in the car as quickly as possible. That's just, it's just a fact of life. Winnipeg is built on the car from downtown, the one-way streets, to the width of all the streets, to the, you know, to all the way out to the suburbs. It's it's the number one issue in Winnipeg. And so anything that is perceived to have an effect on the efficiency of that has um, resistance. And, you know, I think, I think we have to look at, I agree with that in most of the city, but in downtown, we have to have higher priorities for, for downtown. We, we need to make it it's the, it's the centerpiece of the city. It's where tourists come. It's the economic engine of the city. It needs to be somewhere that's safe, that's vibrant, that's exciting. When you go to a city, where do you, where do you hang out? You don't hang out in, in the suburb out in the distance. You hang out. It's the image of our city. When we're trying to attract business, when we're trying to attract investment, downtown is what companies look at. And if we can't provide a downtown that's, that's exciting and safe and prosperous and has storefronts and shops and, and great restaurants and patios. If we can't do that, we're going to fall. We have fallen behind other cities. And so it's not going to be the nirvana that saves, saves the world. It's, it's just crossing the street. So let's just cross the street and see what happens. We know what the effect is 
with Portage Main closed. We've seen it for 40 years. It's basically a dead zone for blocks in every direction because it drives people away from there. Let's see what happens if we open it and bring people back. I know the property owners in the area are ready to invest and change how that area looks. So let's see how that works. You know what? If it's Armageddon, Carmageddon, we'll put the the blockades back up. Yeah, I'll help you do it. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Like if it. it's that bad, we have the option. But let's just see. We know how the other way is. So let's see what happens when we open it. One of the things that uh, one of the criticisms I think that also gets hurled out at at this particular topic, for example, I think it was twelve million dollars that was going into uh, what was it a study or something or the initial repairs, and uh, people often say, well. Oh, you're going to waste $12 million yeah. on Portage and Maine. Why not yeah. spend it on this? we got crumbling yeah. roads. If you look at the, for one thing, in, in that study, half of that was actually for new buses because they gave it to Transit, and Transit said, well, we need six new buses. Anytime you give something to Transit, they're going to say, we need more buses. <laughs> so I'm not sure that, I think we can look at that again. But even if it is $12 million, and I hope it is $12 million, because I do hope that it's something they don't just break down the barriers. I hope they do something that's actually quite nice and is a showpiece for the city. Um, but in the context of how much we spend on roads, $12 million is nothing. Like that's repaving, what is it, three blocks of Empress Street was was $12 million. Like it's, in the grand scheme of how much we spend on roads, the Waverly Underpass is $150 million. It's 10 times more than opening Portage Main. And the impact... There's actually payback at opening Portage of Maine. People, the, the property owners are ready to invest and grow the grow the property tax base. You know, we're building this artistry tower um, right at one block off Portage of Maine. People will be living there. Like it's time to to change the the idea of what that is. I was just in Ottawa for the and was touring the the Canadian History Museum, and there's a huge um, piece on Winnipeg. It's incredible. It's the only city that has its own its own display. And in the centerpiece of that display is a picture of Portage and Maine. It's that important as a national icon that it has a major place in the history museum. Like that's something we have and we're just, we've just turned our back on it. We could bring that back and make it a significant piece of Winnipeg's, you know, culture. Brent Bellamy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Brent, once again, he is an architect with Number 10 Group and an urban affairs columnist and uh, one of our favorite visitors here at CJOB. Thanks for the contributions as always, sir. Thank you. Anytime. If our next guest has her way, it'll be making its way to hospitals in the very near future. Brett, I don't know how much time you ever have spent in hospital, uh, but the food there is mm, come see, come saw. Yeah, I, I personally have not had to spend any time in a, in a hospital myself as a, shall we say, as a guest. Um, but I, I have visited and uh, my mom was recently in the hospital and she seemed to not have a problem with the food. Well, sometimes when you don't eat, they give you a nutritional support beverage, as it's known. And Erin Goldberg joins us from Montreal, Quebec, where she received a 2018 MyTech Social Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Good morning, Erin. Good morning. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, congratulations. And when I spoke to you yesterday, you sounded thrilled to be uh, taking part in everything you took part in yesterday. And I can still hear the smile on your face. How did the awards go last night, Erin? Oh, it was fantastic. Um, the event was incredible. It was held at the Society for Arts and Technology. It's a really cool industrial atmosphere. So it was just an amazing event. Got to speak with some government people, my tax people, and fellow entrepreneurs. So it was really cool to connect with them across Canada. 
Now, it's my understanding that traditional in-hospital meal replacement drinks have recently come under fire. Why is that? Well, generally, um, they use, you know, lower quality ingredients because the main goal is to keep the cost down. Um, And a lot of these ingredients contain animal products. So what we're trying to do with our company, Vital Functional Foods, is just be inclusive for all people. So for people who are vegetarian, vegan in our case, those with food allergies, you know, common ones to things like wheat, corn, Soy. We're just trying to avoid those ingredients, avoid the artificial colors, sweeteners, flavors, and just be inclusive for everyone. So Vital is your functional foods uh, company, but the product that you're going to be marketing first is something called Thrive. And I think you gave us a pretty good description of it there just a moment ago, Aaron, but it's going to be available in two flavors to start? That's right. Yeah, vanilla blueberry and chocolate mocha. So it's a little bit different than your traditional, you know, three varieties. Sometimes they have butter pecan available, but it's generally your chocolate, vanilla and strawberry that's currently available on the market. Under what circumstances would one need a meal replacement? Like, why not just have a meal? Right. I mean, that's the thing. We're not trying to create a fad or encourage people to consume these beverages alone, which a lot of companies are. Um, This is really to support nutrition for individuals who have a difficult time either consuming solid food or they need to just boost their energy and protein because they have a hard time doing so. So a lot of older, a lot of older adults struggle to, you know, eat enough food in general. And if you're in hospital struggling with a, an illness, it can be challenging for sure, especially if you're dealing with nausea. Erin Goldberg joins us. She is a Winnipegger. She received last night a 2018 MyTech Social Entrepreneur Award for her work in this uh, meal replacement. And I got to tell you, uh, Erin, this is really cool. Not only are you combining and, and, and you're an entrepreneur and a Winnipegger, we like to celebrate that stuff, but also you're working at the St. Boniface Hospital Research Center. So, so tell us about your road to creating this meal replacement. That's right. Um, well, I'm, you know, I'm doing this business on the side with my two partners, Sarah and Lisa. Sarah is a registered dietitian at the Health Sciences Center. And Lisa actually has experience uh, working at a food incubator in Toronto. So the three of us kind of came together. I met the two of them during my graduate program while I was doing my PhD in nutritional sciences at the U of M. And so, you know, going through my experience as a child, having cancer and, you know, relating with people, struggling to, you know, consume solid food. When I entered my program, because I was so interested in sciences, I met the two of them and it just seemed to really click. And this was our idea from the beginning. And I'm really, really excited that, you know, we're going to have this product rolling out very soon. I like how you throw that. I like how you throw that part of your history in there like it's no big deal. The fact that you <laughs> dealt with cancer as a kid. Tell us about that ordeal and, and how it's affected uh, what you're doing now. I think it's impacted my route in academia, everything I believe for sure, Um Over a period of two years, I spent 139 days in hospital. So I was five years old when I was diagnosed. Uh, It was late stage, uh, like stage four cancer. And it was definitely a shock to my parents. And, 
it, it definitely encouraged me to look at food and nutrition in a completely different way as I grew older. I was always interested in disease prevention, management, and that's why that's really what led me to get my PhD in nutrition. Has your cancer popped up at all since you were a kid? No, I've been in remission ever since the age of six. So, yeah, it's, it was a struggle back then. It was really difficult for my parents. And thankfully, I'm cancer free. Well, I feel like we should be calling you doctor. Are, are you, are, are, have you not received your PhD? Aaron? Yes, I received it in 2015, so I am currently a doctor, yes. Love it, love it. Postdoctoral fellow Aaron Goldberg joining us from Montreal. Uh, what a fantastic honour for your group. And tell us, uh, I've been on your website, but it's uh, it's in its infancy right now, right? We can't Absolutely. really do, do too much homework on Vital Functional Foods, but uh, I suspect you're going to be a, a staple on the, uh, on the food scene uh, as we move into 2019 here what are the plans for your company well um currently we're moving on to phase two which is our startup trials our bench top so we just need to tweak the formula slightly make it ready for packaging um, because we're using a tetra pack formula so that kind of changes uh, the formulation just a little bit um, so we're going to be moving on to that. We're always looking for investors. So if anyone is interested, please contact me. Uh, this award, the MyTax Award, really helps us because we're putting that $5,000 award towards the benchtop. Um, but yeah, we're definitely excited for the future. And our website is definitely under construction, but we'll be ramping it up soon because we were not expecting so much media attention to go along with this. We're very excited. So once again, when might we be able to see Thrive in Winnipeg hospitals? Definitely within one year. Um, of course, we have to pass some tests with the WRHA. They have to approve our formulation, of course. And, you know, if they like the taste, if they approve uh, the, nu the nutritional specs, then, you know, we're good to go. Aaron, so this, six months to a year, I would say. Aaron, this is very exciting. And, uh, well, well, we'll we'll close with uh, congratulating Dr. Goldberg on, on this incredible uh, happening. And we look forward to meeting you face-to-face -face when you get back to Winnipeg one of these Thanks days. So Once again, congratulations. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, thank you for joining us. Aaron Goldberg, the creator of Thrive, a meal replacement that is healthy and tasty. Erin is a postdoctoral fellow, as Greg pointed out, and she won the 2018 MyTax Social Entrepreneur Award in Montreal last night. That's all the time we have. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Thanks to Behind the Glass, Jerry and Shanley Vidal. And thank you for listening to CJOB. And